Happy New Year and welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. As we start off the new year, Pastor Roy is going back to finish up a short series that we started before the holiday season. New Life in Christ is a series of messages from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 on what should characterize a believer's life in Christ. We encourage you to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 and follow along with Pastor Roy. Happy New Year to all of you. It is good to be in God's house, God's people. We are going to pick back up on a short series that I started a few weeks ago, but then we had... um, well, the children's musical was canceled, and we got Christmas and those things. So I'm going to do just a little bit of uh, review for us. But if you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, I'll read through that. And then we're just going to kind of recap what we've been talking about in relationship to new life in Christ. I thought this was a great place to start in a new year. Uh, to pick back up and talk about new life in Christ. Paul penned these words, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3 of Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Paul here is reminding us in the book of Colossians of the supremacy of Christ in all things. This is the theme of this letter, that Christ is to be supreme, he is to be preeminent, he is to be first, he is to be the priority of our thoughts, our attitudes, and actions in everything that we do. In chapter 1, we see the supremacy of Christ proclaimed. He speaks this world into existence and everything holds together by his power, his authority, because he created it and he made it. And then he goes on later in chapter 1 and talks about the power of the cross. And he carries that idea into chapter 2 as well. And then he talks about the supremacy of Christ preserved because he talks about empty philosophy and vain deceit, human wisdom, that we need to preserve the supremacy of Christ against human philosophy and not cave in and begin to embrace a humanistic approach to life. And then thirdly, the supremacy of Christ is to be practiced. It is to be embraced. It is to be a part of our lives. Here he talks about as God's chosen people, dearly loved, clothe yourselves. He's saying put these garments on 24-7. You don't put them on and then you put them back in the closet and say, well, I'll wear them another day. No, we put them on and they are to be permanently worn by all of us all of the time. And that is the challenge for every one of us to wear these clothes all the time because there are sometimes we would like to take them off and do things in the flesh. But what does Paul say? He says to put off the old self. 
in verse 9 of chapter 3, you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This new self is understanding that Christ is supreme in my life. He is to be the priority, whether I'm at home or with my friends or classmates or work co-workers or in the marketplace or on the basketball court or in the locker room. It doesn't matter who I'm with that Christ is to be supreme in all things. What a great way to start the new year that Christ would reign supreme in our lives. And then we went on and we talked about our position in Christ. He says, what does he say? As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. What is this position that God has given us? That we have been chosen by God before the creation of the world. That we are chosen by him. And then he goes on to say that we are holy, that we are chaste. We are pure in Christ. And that's why he reigns supreme and we are dearly loved. We are cherished. We are chosen, we are chaste, and we are cherished, children of God. And so therefore, because I'm chosen, because I'm chaste, because I'm cherished, I have this new motivation and passion to wear the garments of godliness that Christ might be seen, his supremacy in my life and in your life and in through Bethesda Church in 2017. And so from here, he goes about our practice in Christ to put on what? compassion, mercy and tenderness toward others. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on these because we've spent time at length on these. You have to get the other messages. They're online. Compassion, mercy and tenderness toward others, kindness, a sweetness of disposition, being warm-hearted, considerate, practical helpfulness toward others. Well, that's not my job description. (laughs) Well, that's not the idea of practical helpfulness. It's how can I be a help to someone else? And then thirdly, humility. Humility, a person characterized by humility has three things. They have an understanding of their own depravity. I understand the wickedness of my own heart and the deceit in my own life so that before I judge somebody else, I can see it in my own life. When I open the pages of Scripture and I see the mirror of the ugliness of my sin before a holy God, that causes humility. Secondly, I am emptied of self-interest because of my understanding of the cross. The cross helps me, reminds me of my depravity and why Jesus hung there. It was not just for your sin, it was for mine. It was for my guilt, my penalty, my judgment, my wrath that I deserved. And so because of that, I am humbled that Christ would die for me and would die for you. Thirdly, we have a clear vision of God's splendor and majesty. When we have that, it humbles us. (laughs) What is man that you are even mindful of him or the son of man that you would visit him? And when we have these three things in our life and we have the compassion, the kindness, and humility, what it will do is it will bring a unity to the body of Christ like nothing else. And actually there's more to unify us. He goes on and talks about gentleness and patience. The opposite of fierceness. We're mild toward faults which are blameworthy. 
and we're gentle and patient. We restrain ourself and what we would like to do, and we withhold. And then he goes on, and they don't get any easier. (laughs) Bear with each other. You see, some of us, it's easier to bear people that we really love and care about than sometimes people that we don't love and care about. Sometimes even the ones we do, it can be difficult. The true test of this garment is this. When someone says something or does something that appears thoughtless or inconsiderate, that's when it is difficult to bear with someone. When they make a thoughtless, reckless statement, a cutting remark, a put-down, or they're inconsiderate in what they do, what are we supposed to do? We are to put up with it. An acceptance requiring an effort of will because the attitude and actions in question are immature and tiresome. This is the hundredth time they've done it, but who's counting? (laughs) And it becomes difficult to bear with someone who does something over and over and over and over, but it could be because of their maturity and your kindness might be the very thing that leads them to Christ. And that's what we have to remember So we tolerate it, we endure it, and this is the only way, this is the only way we can have a long-term relationship with other people. It is impossible to have long-term relationships with people if we do not have these characteristics in our lives. So many people, oh, we were friends for years, and all of a sudden, what, we separated. Or these people in in the family were friends, and they got along, and all of a sudden, something happened, there was an offense that something happened and now they separated. The only way you can overcome that is to bear with each other. So let me give you three questions to consider in bearing with someone that we all should consider. And I'll tell you what, these three questions, when I answer them, it has, it has removed anger, frustration. For me to go to someone in anger and frustration, I can't do it. Why? Because I have to answer these three questions. And if I answer them, then I can't go with the attitude I have. I have to repent. (laughs) Say, God, I'm sorry. This isn't the right attitude. I can't go that way. And here they are. Number one, am I being an imitator of God in this situation? Am I really imitating God in this situation? Yes, it's a hurtful, disappointing, frustrating situation. But am I imitating you in this situation? to everyone that's involved. It's not, they deserve this. It's, am I imitating God? Because what does he tell us in Ephesians 5.1? Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. Am I imitating God in my behavior, in my attitude? And boy, do I have to do an attitude adjustment sometimes because the words that I want to say... And the words that I should say are two very different things. And the way that I want to treat the person and the way that God wants me to treat him could be absolutely opposite. Because in the flesh, it runs counter to everything the Spirit of God wants to do. Secondly, am I looking for ways to build this person up? Maybe I see immaturity. I see hurtful comments. 
I see attitudes that are not Christ-honoring. What am I supposed to do? Am I looking for ways to build the person up? Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. And then Paul adds these crucial words, according to their needs. In other words, they may need your grace and your kindness and your bearing with them to help them become more Christ-like. And it says, for the purpose that it may benefit those who listen. What they might need from me is grace. What they might need from me is room to grow. What they might need from me is room to make a mistake and allow them that room. In Romans 15, 1 and 2, Paul says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good. For what purpose? To build him up. That's the purpose. That they become more Christ-like and I become more Christ-like because I'm imitating God in this situation. Here's the third one. Am I accepting them for who they are? It doesn't mean that where they are is okay, but I have to accept them for where they are in their station in life because the truth of the matter is I don't know everything they've been through in their life. I may think I do, but I probably don't. And I don't know how they've interpreted everything that has happened to them in their lives. And so they may be going through some hurts and disappointments that I know nothing about. And so am I, am I accepting them for who they are? And more importantly, maybe for who they can become in Christ. Romans 15, 7 says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. If we will filter through these three questions before we address someone, it will help us in how we address them. It absolutely will. Then it doesn't get any easier. Bearing with one another... And then look at the very next one. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Paul is implying that there's going to be grievances even in the body of Christ among believers who supposedly love each other and who Christ died for will have differences of opinion, differences of understanding, differences of perception, and we have to be willing to, there will be offenses that will seek to divide us in the body of Christ. How do we overcome those? We do it by forgiving one another. A grievance is a complaint. It could be a resentment. Or you have in some way found fault with this person. You blame them for something. They committed an offense against you. And it could be very, very hurtful offense. But what does Paul say? To forgive them. And what he means by that is to pardon and cancel the debt. You act graciously toward this person. You do not hold a grudge against them. Forgiving is based on the root word for grace. It is especially appropriate when somebody is offended. 
Now let me say this, and listen carefully to this, because this will be important when we understand forgiveness. The basis of forgiveness for me and for you is God's forgiveness of my sin. The basis for my forgiving somebody else is God's forgiving me of my sin. The basis of God's forgiveness is his great, unmatched, and unwavering love. His great, unmatched, unwavering love is demonstrated in his death on the cross. Notice it says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what I want you to recognize here. It says God demonstrates his own love. He didn't demonstrate his forgiveness. He demonstrated his love because his forgiveness is couched in his love. God demonstrates his own love. That's what motivated him to go to the cross for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world, not so God forgave the world, he loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. You see, forgiveness is one aspect, and an important one, of justification. Justification is where the fact that God has justified me. He has declared me righteous before God because of the blood of Christ that's been applied to my sin. I have been declared righteous before God. That's justification. When a person has been forgiven by God, he pardons him, thereby absolving the sinner from any and all condemnation of the law. And because of Christ's death on the cross, he removes the guilt of sin, and the sinner is no longer subject to God's wrath and judgment. And so therefore, what right do I have to pour wrath and judgment on someone else? Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith, I receive the forgiveness of God as the payment for my sin. And notice what he says down in verse 15 then of Colossians chapter 3. And because of that justification and forgiveness we've received from Christ, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace, the peace of Christ rules in my heart. Why? Because I've been justified before a holy God. He has absolved all my guilt, all my shame, all my sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. All sin has been put under the blood. What a wonderful thing that is. So here's the deal when it comes to forgiveness. There will be times and probably many opportunities if you've lived the Christian life very long to exercise forgiveness. Many times there will be blame even on both sides, and we have to be willing to receive it and ask forgiveness if we need to do that. The offended, and when I say this, I say should, 
the offended should take the initiative in forgiving rather than waiting for the offender to apologize. They should take the initiative, but oftentimes they don't. Oftentimes they just walk away and you don't know what's going on. And they should be saying, you know what, I was offended. I was hurt by what you said or what you did. And that's where reconciliation can happen. What is the purpose of coming together to just give a grievance and a complaint? No. The purpose of saying I've been hurt and I've been offended is that we can receive forgiveness and reconciliation can happen. That's God's desire in any relationship is that it is reconciled and restored relationship. Anyone can hold grudges, but the mark of Christians is that we do not. John Enser, in his book, Experiencing God's Forgiveness, he made an interesting statement. He said, all evil behavior is motivated by an overinflated sense of self-worth that supplants the worth of God and the worth of others. That is written into the genetic code of every sinful action. Me first, me last, glory be to me. Frederick Buchner said it well, we all tend to make ourselves the center of the universe. In searching for God's forgiveness, we must not pin our hopes on God finding us so valuable that he feels compelled to forgive us. We must pin our hopes on God wanting to show us the value of his love for guilty sinners. Corey Ten Boom's struggle to forgive is well known in Christian circles, but it's worth repeating since it shows the importance of trusting in God's word. During World War, World War II, Corey and her family rescued Jews from slaughter by hiding them in their house. They were betrayed, caught, and sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp, and more than 96,000 women lost their lives there, one of whom was Corey's beloved sister, Betsy. Corey, prisoner number 366730, survived. A few years later, in 1947, Corey gave a speech at a church in Munich, Germany, after which a heavyset man approached her. Corey recognized him as one of the most brutal guards in her camp. She froze in pain and anguish. The man said to her, Since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, will you forgive me? Corey wrestled with what she said was the most difficult thing she ever did. She wrote, I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who injured us. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. 
And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It ran down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, she cried with all her heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. God will supply the grace that is needed for forgiveness. I think of the example in the Old Testament in the story of Joseph. Joseph saw the sovereign guiding hand of God in his life when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He says in Genesis 45, And now do not be distressed, he says to his brothers, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives, listen to this, that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five there will not be plowing and reaping. And then he says this, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. If Joseph's brothers were telling the story, here's what his brothers would say. We sold Joseph into slavery. When Joseph tells the same story, he doesn't say I was sold into slavery. He says, God sent me ahead of you. Isn't that interesting? Interesting perspective, a totally different perspective because he saw the guiding, sovereign hand of God even in the midst of a most painful, difficult trial in his life because he went on to spend many, many years in prison. But it says in that whole ordeal, God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. He saw the sovereign hand of God that he wasn't just sold into slavery. He was sent by God. If we are going to learn to forgive someone, we have to realize the sovereign hand of God, even in the midst of sin and evil. Evil was not only necessary for Joseph to go what he went through, it was required an interesting thought. Joseph didn't say what they did was okay or that God would not judge them for their wrongdoing. He merely said, I will forgive you and I'll let God do what he does best in setting the record straight. Reconciliation is always the goal when someone has hurt or offended us. The goal is to repair the broken relationship and have restored fellowship with them. And when that happens, God is glorified. The supremacy of Christ is magnified when we do that. Well, he goes on to say, forgive how as the Lord forgave you. How did God forgive us? Freely. <laughs> Freely. He didn't put any condition on it other than confess your sin. I will forgive. He who comes to me, I will no wise cast out. 
He forgives freely. And so we need to forgive freely as well. He goes on to say, love. The next piece of garment we are to wear 24-7 is love. Affectionate regard. Love of neighbor comes from God. He says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The reality of my faith, the reality of my relationship with Christ, the reality of the supremacy of Christ in my life is faith expressing itself through love. That I love somebody who doesn't deserve it. The people who need love the most deserve it probably the least. And that's the ones we need to love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. God's Holy Spirit prompts me and frees me to do loving activity. When the Spirit of God is in control of my life, that's why he says in Galatians chapter 6, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. He says in the opening chapter of the letter that we're in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 4, Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. I would like to say love we have for most of the saints. <laughs> there are times when that most... And all is an all-inclusive word. I, I don't remember where I found this, but I, I found this little short poem a number of years ago, and I just, it came to memory, and I jotted it down, and I don't even remember who said it, but as I was preparing this sermon, and it says, To dwell above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. To live below with saints we know, that's another story. <laughs> because it's a challenge. We have that flesh, we have that sin nature that wants to rise up and be on the throne of our life and wants to attack and wants to be right and wants to be, get even, but yet love. And notice he says that love over all these virtues put on love which does what? It binds them all together in perfect unity. It fastens all the pieces in Bible times in the first century, it was, a, it was a girdle that was worn by men and women. And that girdle was used to stuff the garments in and, and hang things on. And it was, it was the piece that held all the pieces together. It was the completeness. It was the maturity, as it were, is what he's saying. Love is the most mature thing we can do. It glues everything together. It's like the tendon and the ligaments of the bone. It holds us together. A bundle of sticks tied together are stronger than a stick by itself. And so we need to be bound together in love and unity and care and concern for one another. And then he goes on to say that the peace of Christ might rule in our hearts since as members of one body we were called to peace. The peace of Christ is the absence of mental stress or anxiety. And we understand that the gospel is a gospel of peace. 
He talks about our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we have peace in our lives because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jews and Gentiles became one who had utter hatred for one another. Why? They made peace through the blood of the cross, the Bible says. In Psalm 119, verse 165, he says, Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. And as we approach this new year, new life in Christ is the guiding principle of what we should be after. Supremacy of Christ in all things. And I thought one great way to illustrate that, then I would like to have our leaders of our church, our elders, our deacons, to come forward at this time, if you would. And I want to pray for us as leaders of 2017 for our church. If you just come forward and stand here, I want to pray for our leaders. And, and this gives you a chance to see who they are. Many of you know who they are, but you're going to see in every one of us flaws. We all have flaws. We're not leading because we're perfect and we're absolutely mature and we've done all the growing in Christ we're ever going to do. No. And there'll be mistakes. There'll be misunderstandings. There'll be differences of opinion. <laughs> there'll be all of that. We have some of that in our meetings, don't we, guys? Oh, I guess we shouldn't tell them that. <laughs> Of course, we're imperfect, we're flawed. But you know what? God somehow chose 12 men <laughs> to build the church, and he uses ladies too, not a chauvinist. But God has called, this is the way he operates in a church. And I just pray that God will be glorified through our church, that the supremacy of Christ will reign in every one of our hearts we will lead with integrity. We will lead so that God's glory is magnified and the gospel is expanded in 2017 through this church. I hope that there'll be more people in Huron and surrounding towns come to Christ as a result of our love, our forgiveness, our bearing with one another, all those things that are there. We have many, many other people who lead in this church that we could call up. But you know what? We have 52 weeks this year, so we're, you're probably going to get a turn too <laughs> to come up and be a part of this. And we just want to incorporate this into our, our church. So let's all stand together as I lead us in a prayer this morning. And we just pray that God will use us in 2017 for his honor and glory. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.